Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to just read here verse 11 for our consideration this afternoon. Paul writes to this church, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And we saw that these functions, the function and gift of the apostles, and the function and gift of the apostles, of of the prophets, we saw this morning that these are gifts as men. There's not really a gift of apostle, there's the gift of the man being the apostle, the man being the prophet, the man being the evangelist, the man being the pastor, teacher. And that we ought to accept these gifts as from Him. They are for the good of Christ's church and they are for the good of the body of Jesus Christ. And of course you know as Titus, as Paul's representative, was sent to the churches at Crete, Paul told him to go to those churches and listen to the way he words it, and to place give them the order to order the New Testament churches there on the island of Crete. And part of that order is the acceptance of Christ's gifts to those uh, New Testament assemblies. And so you know as they would go back, they would appoint pastors, elders of those churches as the gift from Him. And we saw also this morning that really the functions or the manifestation of these men's work, the effect of these men's work, was actually the fulfilling of the Great Commission where Christ told us that we're to go and teach them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has taught us. And of course these men are representative of that. We're to have the same aim, we're to have the same underpinning, the same foundational doctrine, and we're to have the same coordinated unity. Are all apostles? No. No. Are all prophets? No. No. Are all teachers? Do all have the same manifestation of a particular gift? The answer to that is, is no, that is not. But although we differ in gifts either being the gift or manifesting the gift of the Spirit, it is all to be coordinated for the building up of a local New Testament assembly. And this morning we looked at the two gifts of apostles and prophets. And we saw that the words here, apostles, is more than likely referring to the apostles, what we will call the traditional true apostles, those who would have the signs of being the apostle of Christ. And those men were given to us as sent directly from Christ. They actually heard directly the voice of Christ. And they also had the authentication, they had the marks of being that genuine apostle of the Lord. And so we concluded this morning that based on these three qualifications, 
do we have apostles gifted to the church today from Christ? And the answer to that is, no, we do not. Can men call themselves apostles? Well, they can. Can they try to think like they're acting like one? Well, they think they can, but there are no gifted men, there are no men gifted to the church today as apostles. They are for the very foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Then we looked at here the prophet. And of course a prophet fundamentally is someone who speaks new revelation from God. And of course that new revelation was absolutely necessary. And someone asked me this morning and said, well, were the prophets ever given anything, new revelation, that we don't have today? I mean, did the apostles receive new revelation? Yes. The prophets received new revelation. Did they give us something that we don't have today? And of course, you can't answer that definitively because we don't. We don't have it, right? But the answer to that, I said, was actually no that I can definitely see a situation where a prophet within a local New Testament assembly might give up and give some new revelation, new insight, say, into the mystery of Christ. But when Paul, as the apostle, came, he would sum up and they would write down by inspiration all the framework. We, we are missing nothing necessary in this church age, for us to walk in the Lord, for us to order our New Testament church properly, and to walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I was thinking about that this morning, because in this chapter, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, he actually talks about the order, the importance, and He says here in verse 28, he says, God has appointed in the church first. What is the highest gift? The apostle. Everybody see that? Okay. Then you have second, okay, in that hierarchy, when you're looking at that hierarchy, you got first, you got the apostles. Then underneath that, secondly, you would have the, the prophets. Then third, you would have teachers. Everybody see that? Those those are functions, gifted men to a local New Testament assembly. And then it gives us certain manifestations that are ranked. Then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various types of tongues or languages, And then he says, we all don't have the same thing. But if you're going to desire spiritual gifts, if you're going to ask the Lord to give you a spiritual gift, then you want the the greater ones, right? For the benefit of who? The local New Testament assembly. For the benefit of one to another. It's not like, hey, I'm the pastor and I'm better than you. Or I have the gift of tongues, which is in existence today, therefore I'm better than you. No, that's using the gift for yourself, right? This is a gift used for one another within a local New Testament assembly. So, based on those qualifications, there are no apostles today. And if we would ask ourselves, are there prophets today? 
we would say that based upon the fact that we have a completed New Testament, we have everything that we need, it is all sufficient, isn't it? For everything in life and practice, because we have that completed canon, and the prophets were necessary for the foundation of the church age, we would say there are no prophets today gifted to the assemblies. And of course, we also learned that a prophet wasn't someone who merely foretold the future. We do have an instance of that in the book of Acts when Agabus foretold this famine that was coming, but they were given new revelation for for the exhortation and learning of the, of the church, right? And we saw that that really helps us know that one of the primary, or I would say, in my estimation, the utmost reason why we come to church is to learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be exhorted to walk in that pathway with one another, and to have a worthy wall before him. So that is that primary aim. But even though we don't have these gifted men of apostle and prophet today, we do have something that these men gave for the edification of the church today. What did they give? They gave us the scriptures. Right? We don't have their ministry directly today because they're with the Lord, but we have the effect of their ministry, of the Scripture being written down in our New Testament for the glory of God. And we saw how that came of pass. We saw in John 16 that Christ couldn't tell them everything that He wanted to tell them. And so he said, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to guide those apostles into how much of the truth? you remember the word? All the truth. All the things that Christ wanted to communicate to us. And they were inscripturated. And we have those words today. And they are translated into multiple languages all across this earth. And now the Holy Spirit is not giving new revelation, but He is dealing with the revelation. What is He doing? He has illumined the illumination to us so that we may know and understand the things that are freely given to us by God. How does that illumination happen? Well, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 7 says this, you must place your mind on these texts and God will give you understanding. So if I just take a Bible and put it under my pillow at night and go to sleep thinking that somehow it's going to come out of that book cover up through the pillow into my head and I got it. What do you think? It ain't going to happen. Folks, study, study is not evil. Okay? I think many times we think, man, when we get to heaven, no more study. Well, study's not a sin. Okay? We got to place our minds on these texts. We got to ask the question of those texts. What is it saying? 
What does this mean? What is definition of that word? How does that fit into the context? And that takes work. It takes work to be that rigorous. And folks, one of the things that we're running into today in our culture is that our children are not taught how to think. And they're not taught how to focus their minds. I struggle with this. You struggle with this. The new generation today really struggles with this. To focus our mind on a section in order to learn it, to understand it, to glean the wisdom of it, to engraft it. That takes a lot of mental sweat in order to do that. But what a treasure. What a treasure. The riches of Christ. Now that brings us to the other two gifts that Christ has given to the church for its edification. And it says in Ephesians 4 verse 11, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists. Now there is, I'm just going to stay right right out the gate, there is discussion about what is an evangelist from a New Testament perspective. I don't think, merely from a New Testament perspective, that an evangelist is what we would call a revivalist. In other words, someone who would come into a church, try to kind of awaken people, stir them up, try to get them maybe to go soul winning or to get involved in the church or whatever. I'm not saying that that type of ministry is right or wrong. I'm just saying strictly from a New Testament perspective. I'm not sure that that's what the term evangelist is referring to. What does the Scripture tell us? Well, the word evangelist means someone who announces the good news of the Gospel. They evangelize, if you're going to make that a verb, right? What are you doing if you're evangelizing? Well, you're not merely inviting people to come to your church. You're actually trying to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what an evangelist is fundamentally. Now some people think that this function of an evangelist is not really an office because if you look in Baptist history, and I would ask you this question. Here's a catechism question for you. How many offices in the New Testament for a church? Did you just say two in your head? Mm-hmm. All right, give me one. Pastor, Pastor and deacon. deacon. Well, here you got evangelist. <laughs> and not only do we talk about that, but we also talk about another word that's not really in our New Testament, but it is there, and that is the word missionary. Right? If we send someone out of our church, we're sending them as our representative to, to be a missionary, to, be, to, as it were, be an evangelist in a certain area or a certain country. So what are we looking at here? Well, I would say this. An evangelist 
one who announces the good news of the gospel, is someone who has an itinerant, non-revelatory ministry. Okay, so let's think about that. Itinerant means what? He kind of doesn't set himself down in one particular area. Okay? And non-revelatory means, unlike the apostles and the prophets who received new revelation from God, there's no indication in my New Testament that they were receiving new revelation from God. They were preaching the revelation of the good news of the gospel in certain geographical areas. So let's just take a look at this in the few places that the Bible refers to this. Go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And here we have the selection of what many call the first deacons. And they were having an issue there within the church of the widows being overlooked in the daily serving of the food that they did every day. And so they gathered the church together, the apostles did, and they gathered them together and said, now look, we want you as a congregation to select, verse 3, seven men of good reputation, meaning they were credible, mature, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But as far as we, the apostles, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, the statement found approval from the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And who's the second one? Philip. Everybody see that name, Philip. All right, now turn over in your New Testament to chapter 21, Acts chapter 21. So here Paul's coming back, he's heading back toward Jerusalem. In verse 7, he lands at Tyre. And he continues on, verse 8, The next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, now here's the designation, Philip the who? The evangelist. Now is this a different Philip? Who was one of the seven. Everybody see that? He was one of the seven. We stayed with him. So what do we know thus far? Well, we know Philip, His function within a New Testament church, at least in the book of Acts chapter 6, was as a servant, as a deacon, who was serving tables, right? But he was also a who, according to Acts chapter 21. He was also one who announced the good news of Jesus Christ. Not that he's the only one doing that, but he is gifted to the church for that function. Everybody see that? So there you got Philip the evangelist. Well, what is the modern day equivalent of this? Well, there you can have fun and have conversation. Some people think that the modern day equivalent of an apostle is a missionary. 
is a missionary a sent one from a local New Testament church? Yes. Okay, so maybe a missionary is a little a apostle. But is a missionary going somewhere in order to announce the good news of Jesus Christ and gather people into a local New Testament assembly? The answer to that is yes. So maybe our modern day term missionary is the evangelist. And I'll leave it up to you to have fun discussions about whether or not that is. But what we do know from the New Testament is that we have an illustration, now follow my wording, of the evangelist work. We have an illustration of that. And I want you to turn the book of Acts to Acts chapter 8. Now, having looked at these passages, we have exhausted all the passages except one that deal with an evangelist. So here in Acts chapter 8, we have a certain man. Look at verse 4. Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And lo and behold, in verse 5, who pops up? Philip. He's one of the seven, right? He's ministering to one another within that local New Testament assembly. And we know from Acts chapter 21, he's Philip the Evangelist. That's how you would refer to him and everybody would know who you're talking about. Well, here we have an instance of him doing the work of an evangelist. So, Philip goes down, verse 5. He goes down to the city of Samaria. What was he doing? Proclaiming who? That's announcing the good news, isn't it? So here we have, as it were, we have a location, city of Samaria, and we have the content of what he was preaching. He was proclaiming Christ to them. And there was a result of that ministry. There were also some signs that went on here. But look down at verse 12. When they believed Philip, what's he doing? Verse 12, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. What else was going on in his ministry? Those who believed were being what? Baptized. Now, folks, when you read that, you have to understand they're being baptized, meaning they are being brought together into local New Testament assemblies. Everybody following me? That's why you baptize people. You're there to show that spiritual immersion into the body of Christ. It is seen locally, geographically, when those baptized believers are coming together. So he's preaching. There's the content. Okay, He doesn't stay there very long. The apostles actually come down and you have the situation with the, the uh, magician, Simon the magician. We'll go down in verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, <clears throat> saying, Get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to 
What geographical area? Gaza. Gaza. Everybody see that. So, was he in Jerusalem? Was he ministering in the church? Did he go to another geographical area, Samaria? Now, he's baptized those. They've been brought together. The apostles come down. Okay, now where's he going? Well, he's going to Gaza. He's on that road heading down toward Gaza. And guess what? Verse 27, So he got up and went, and look at who he found on that road. He found the Ethiopian eunuch. And he has stopped his chariot, and he's in the chariot, and he is consumed about something that he had heard at Jerusalem, and he actually, this is amazing, he actually was so wealthy, he actually had a scroll, right? And he's looking at that, and the Holy Spirit says to Philip the Evangelist, go join yourself to that chariot. Okay. So was he on the road? Now where's he going? He's going to announce the good news to an individual. Right? He's not preaching to crowds, right? He's going to an individual. So here's this man, verse 28, sitting in his chariot. He's returning back home to Ethiopia, reading the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 30, Philip the evangelist went up, he ran up and heard him. He, heard, he was reading this out loud. Isaiah the prophet, <clears throat> and he said to him, how do you like this for knocking on one door and saying, do you know whether or not you're going to heaven or hell? No, he didn't say that. He said, do you understand what you're reading? That's a great statement, isn't it? And of course, the man says, verse 31, well, <clears throat> how could I unless someone guides me? And do you think Philip in his heart said, pick me, pick me? Right? So he goes down, he sits up with that, and he, he looks at the passage the man is reading, and what a wonderful passage to announce the good news of Jesus Christ to. And so he does that. And he gave him that understanding, and what he did was is he preached the gospel to that man. Now look at what he says in verse 37. He preached Jesus to him. Verse 38, excuse me, verse 36. He says, they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch says, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, I wonder where he got that from. He got it from the preaching of Philip, right? And look at what Philip says, verse 37. <clears throat> Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you what? You may. Believe what? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you see that? Does everybody see that? Okay. So what was the content of the good news? Well, he certainly explained the Scripture to him, didn't he? 
And he went from there to preach the good news about the kingdom of God and about this person named Jesus Christ. And he taught him that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he is the Son of God. And of course, through the text of Isaiah, verses 32 and 33, surely he took him right to the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the atonement for our sins. He preached that to this man. And the man just says, I mean, there's no indication, you know, that the lights went soft, you know, and they play just as I am without one plea or anything like that, right? The man just looks at him and says, look, there's water. I want to be, I want to be baptized. Then the question, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? And the man says what? The man says yes, and Philip baptizes him there. So what is he doing fundamentally? He's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water. Note, he wasn't being sprinkled. They went down into the water. Philip as well as the eunuch, and he what? He baptized him, and then when they came out of the water, how would you like this to happen? Then the Holy Spirit snatched Philip, and he went away, and look at verse 40, and Philip found himself at at Azaretus. So is he in another geographical location? He is. What did he do as he passed through? He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he got back to where? Caesarea. So folks, what does an evangelist do? He proclaims Christ. And, you know, he's not there talking about the Roman government. He's not there talking about the current news. His passion, his desire, every situation, every occasion, no matter where I find myself, if I'm in a taxi, if I'm in a car, if I'm in a different city for business, I just want to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Is that not a gift? That is a gift. And folks, you have looked at all the passages that deal with an evangelist in the New Testament except one. And that last passage is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So let's turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, folks, remember, we all don't have the same function. Now, let me ask you this. Did Peter evangelize? But he's called, how's he functioning as an apostle? They all were scattered everywhere proclaiming Christ. That's the congregations that were at Jerusalem, right? But they they weren't all called evangelists. So all of us should be confessing Christ. All of us should be looking for those opportunities that are there. But there there are certain people, if you take this gift of an event, there are certain people, I, I don't know any other way to put it, that's what they're thinking about all the time. Like all the time. When they go out, do we need people like that? We do need people like that. But folks, I do think it's a mistake 
<clears throat> to give to give the intimidation that every one of us in here ought to be thinking about that all the time. Should we be thinking about it? Yes. yes. But we all have different function and we all have different manifestations of the Spirit, right? I'll tell you what I think about all the time. The maturity of God's people. I think about that all the time. Now I also think about evangelism. When I go out, I'm talking to people, I'm looking for those opportunities. But what I'm really thinking about is those sheep, they need to grow up in Him in all things. Now why is that happening? Because my function in a local New Testament assembly is to be a pastor teacher. Everybody with me? Okay. We all are to show mercy. But you have certain people that that's where they're oriented all the time. And folks, we need to have that coordinated unity within the body of Christ. And I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll save us a lot of guilt trip is what it'll do. So that we're more able to function and to manifest those spiritual gifts that God has given to us. And by the way, Nowhere in my New Testament are we ever, ever to concern ourselves with what is my gift. Your gift will show itself. (laughs) We'll see it as a church. If you have a gift of teaching, eventually when you're in a local New Testament body, somebody's going to say, would you take that Sunday school class? Would you go teach this Bible study? Why? Because the body's what? The body's recognizing that gift. Okay? And so you don't have to ask yourself, get all worked up. I remember years ago, probably 35 years ago, the big thing was finding your spiritual gift. Okay? And I actually took two, quote, Christian psychology tests to try to determine what my gift was. And I actually told one of the pastors, I said, don't you know this is useless? Because all the questions could have been answered by a lost person. These are spiritual gifts given to the body of Christ. We'll see it. We'll recognize it within that body. What is that other place? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he's talking to Timothy as his representative at the church at Ephesus. And Timothy went there as Paul's representative, but he ends up really functioning as Paul's representative as an elder, as a pastor over the elders that were there. And so he, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, verse 2. All right, tell me who he's preaching the word to. The church at Ephesus, right? Preach the word regardless of the season that the church is in. Whether whether they're in season or out of season, use that word to do the work of the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Verse 3, because the time's going to come when they, who's the they? People within the church at Ephesus and broadly within the church, they're not going to endure sound doctrine. But what they want is their ears tickled 
And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside the myths. Okay, everybody see the problem? Okay, there's going to be something going on within a local New Testament church and they're not going to endure healthy doctrine. So what they're going to do is they're going to go out, I'm reading between the lines, and start other local, local churches that are based on their desires. Now, is that happening today? Well, that is happening today. Okay, but Timothy, listen, Timothy. When this happens, don't move. Preach the word. Verse 5 maintain sobriety about this. Keep your mind balanced, Timothy. Endure hardship. Is it a hardship when people leave your church? It is. It's hard for the pastors, the elders. It's hard for the congregation. We have a whole book, 1 John, addressed to a church that had a good portion of that congregation leave and deny the deity of Christ. And John has to write back to that church to assure them that the things they know are true. Timothy, endure hardship. Do the what of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Now what is he saying to that elder, to that pastor? What's he saying to Timothy? Folks, what's going on in that local New Testament assembly? He's saying this to Timothy. Timothy, don't assume the people you're preaching to are all born again. Do the work of an evangelist. What is the, what is the work of an evangelist? To proclaim the good news of Christ, right? Timothy's there for the maturing, for the growing up of that body. But Timothy, don't, don't lay aside this work of the evangelist because there are people in that congregation who are turning to their own desires and their itchy little ears, and if you proclaim the gospel to that person, they might, what? They might get saved. Plus you have young people coming up in that congregation. Timothy, do the work of evangelists while you're proclaiming and preaching the word to them. That's what that passage is referring to. He's not telling Timothy to become an evangelist. He's telling Timothy to do the what of an evangelist? The work of an evangelist in his preaching. In your preaching the word, don't forget, Timothy, even though it's out of season, still keep proclaiming the gospel to that local New Testament assembly. So folks, that's what an evangelist is. And there's not a whole lot of passages, is there? But we do get the sense of what an evangelist is doing. And folks, I could just say this. What a gift that Christ would give to an assembly. Lastly, there is this, pastors and teachers. Now again... There is debate about this phrase when he gave some as pastors and teachers. 
And I'm just going to enter into the debate in this way. There are those who see pastors and teachers as two different functions. And one of the argumentation for that is that you have the word pastors, plural. Everybody see that? And teachers, what? Plural. We also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 38, we, verse 28, we said it. God is placed first in the church apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers in the Corinthian passage. Some people consider that as two distinguishing functions. There are others, and I lean this way, and this is the way I would would go with this. They see pastors and teachers as encompassing one function, and I'll tell you why. You can't see it here in our English translation. But in Ephesians 4.11, you got, He gave some, and in the New American Standard, it's got the little word as, and it's italicized. Everybody see that? In the Greek, there's actually an article before that. The word the. So if we're going to be very literal, He gave some the apostles. Then it says, and some, there's an article before this, the prophets. And some, and there's an article before the word evangelist, the, the evangelist. Everybody following me here? And then the last phrase, some, the pastors and teachers. In other words, it's not the pastors and the teachers. It's brought together as one. Now there's all kinds of grammatical, Greek nuances and argumentation about this, which is far above my pay grade. Okay. Ultimately, it's not going to matter too much in our understanding of this. If you say that these are functions that are distinguished one from another, then a teacher would have a special work within the local New Testament church to instruct. That's what a teacher does, right? To instruct systematically doctrine from the Scripture to mature the saints. That's what he would do. But, Whatever you might say in distinguishing that as a teacher, a teacher is not a pastor. A teacher is a is a teacher. Everybody following me? And if you look at good godly pulpits, what you'll find in the pulpit is you will find men that might be really strong on preaching, on the pastoring weaker on the teaching and you might find some that are real strong on the teaching and a little weaker on the preaching side of things on the exhortation okay but it's all being combined in that function a teacher 
is not necessarily a pastor. So when someone who says, well, I have the gift of teaching, that doesn't mean automatically that you're called to be a pastor over a local New Testament assembly. Everybody follow me with that. Okay. If you take it as one gift, which I lean toward, then what you have here is a pastor teaching or a pastor teacher. You have a shepherd that teaches. And folks, we know that shepherding, shepherding occurs through scriptural exhortation. In other words, a pastor is someone, I'm not going to have my wife stand, but if she stood, a pastor is someone who comes alongside and puts his hand around your shoulder and says, let's head in this direction. Let's follow the Lord in this direction. Come on, let's go. That's exhorting, right? Okay. I don't want to use the phrase, you can do it, you can do it. But he does come along and say, yes, this is the way. Come on, let's walk in this together. And if you've been in any form of counseling with me, you know that somewhere along the line, if it goes through, I'll say, let's walk together through this. Okay. That's the shepherding side of a pastor. And he shepherds through the Scriptures. Okay, that's the authority that he has to do that. But it is also true that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says that among all the qualifications to be an elder or a pastor, you have to be able to teach. Okay. All the other qualifications for an elder are all the same qualifications that any of us would aspire to. Husband and one wife, right? Gentle. That's, those are things we all ought to what? We all ought to be doing. But that man ought to have a maturity about him in doing that. But he also has to have the ability to teach. So I word it this way. Sometimes you have men who are teachy preachers. And sometimes you have men who are preachy teachers. <laughs> okay, You see what I'm saying? I'm holding those two gifts there, that exhortation. So, so if you've got a man, he has the ability to teach, but he doesn't have the ability to exhort and say, let's do this. Well, he's, he's not to be a pastor because that's what a pastor's got to do to a congregation. You just don't want me to teach you something. You want me to teach it to you and then say, let's, let's observe it. Let's do it. Okay. But if you're always telling people, well, let's do it, let's do it, well, you, they're going to say, well, let's do what? Could you teach me why I should do that? And that's the teacher part. And of course, there's different measures of that gift, okay? And different abilities with that gift. A pastor has the ability to teach, and he has the ability to exhort or to shepherd. So folks, what we're looking at here is this. A pastor teacher who is a shepherd over a New Testament flock. A pastor teacher is someone who through the Scripture and by the Scripture protects the flock. Everybody see that? 
In other words, he's putting up the scriptural boundaries and saying we should not go beyond these scriptural boundaries. There's protection in that. And he is to show care for the flock. Care for the flock. My wife will tell you I'm always talking about the church. Even when we went on break. It might go a few hours, but eventually we end up talking about the church. And then my wife would say, we're supposed to be on break. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. Okay? Why is that? Because... The church is who Christ died for. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, isn't He? Do you think His mind ever leaves the welfare of the flock? And I'm an under-shepherd. I'm to be reflecting, imperfectly as I am, I'm to be reflecting the care of the flock. So there's protection. There's care. There's encouragement. There are times where I'm like, you know what? This section of Scripture, you know, we're, we're struggling to do this and, you know, I need, to, I, I need to really preach contextually, accurately what the text is saying in, in a way that is encouraging to say, come on, we're doing, let's, let's do it. And then there are those times that I have to warn. Those are not fun times for me to warn a church or to warn a believer. You go in this direction, calamity is going to hit you. It may be a year. It may be two years. It may be... I've seen cases where it's been 10 or 15 years and they've completely forgot how they transgress against the Lord, and then the Lord visits like a thief in the night in their lives. But there's that warning aspect. Protection, care, warning, encouraging, teaching, exhorting, coming alongside. That's the gift of a pastor-teacher. And now, folks, understanding all that, we ought to understand why that man ought to be an elder, meaning not just age, there ought to be a maturity about him. What do children do? They're tossed to and fro with every wind of every wind of doctrine. I knew a man, he was a good man, gave his life for the ministry, sacrificed a lot of things, but, but he really wasn't giving himself to the study of the Scripture, and he became weaker and weaker. And when I had the opportunity to look at his library, he had all kinds of Christian mysticism-type books of people and church history who were doing all these types of mystical things to try to get the power of God, whatever that was. That wasn't the way that man was taught. But there became a lack of maturity in his shepherding. And it did cost him. He's not in the ministry anymore, but he's been out of the ministry for decades. 
There needs to have that maturity. That's what the word elder represents. And blessed is a church that has a multiple of elders like that, right? You just think about the maturity of a church and the multiplicity of elders and shepherding over the flock. So, as we conclude, folks, these are gifts that Christ gave to the church. As we read in our Scripture reading this morning, the Lord told Israel that He Himself would gather the flock. He would gather them out of all the countries where He had driven them. He would bring them back to the proper pasture, speaking of Israel. They would be fruitful and multiply, and that God would raise shepherds over them, and they would tend them, And they would not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then he says, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. And this righteous branch said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Listen to what he says. I must bring them. Also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Everybody hear that? He's not like the Pharisees, who they were hirelings. He laid down his life for the sheep. He's going to gather those sheep together. And, folks. Our good shepherd, the righteous branch, gave gifts to the body of Christ. He gave gifts for our feeding and our health and our security. I'll never forget a lady who came at my previous ministry. and She had come from a very, very troubled church in fact, the church disbanded. It was just an awful, awful situation. And she walked up to me after a service and she looked at me in the eye and said, I feel so secure here. And I almost wept. Knowing her background, knowing the trouble that she had had, you, you couldn't have given me a million dollars to make me more happy when she said that to me. And by the way, she's still at that ministry. What remains is that a church treasures those gifts. They don't despise them. They don't look down on them. They don't elevate them to some form of idolatry. But they treasure the feeding. And folks, the longer you're having the feeding, the easier it is to take it for granted.
I'm just telling you from a pastor's perspective and my own personal feeding in order to feed the flock. You can take it for granted. To treasure the feeding, to treasure the grace that God gives to us through Christ, through His Word, and the very peace that comes to the gathering of God's people in a local New Testament assembly. These under-shepherds, redeemed and gifted by the shepherd of the sheep, to the body of Christ the church, are critical and necessary for our growth to maturity, to walking a worthy walk before the Lord. Let's pray.